in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20. You can find that on page 194 of your Red Pew Bible. So Joshua 20, or page 194, whichever applies to you. Well, there's a fascination I've always had with... um, Wilderness survival. There's actually there's something I've always wanted to do is to take a shoebox and just go camping for a week with just what I can fit in that shoebox. Um, it's fascinating. It's kind of one that you want to see if you can do it. Uh, and uh, there's all sorts of shows now where you can uh, watch people try to do that and either thrive or fail. It's always kind of interesting to see what's going to happen. Uh, if you watch any of those shows, you'll see that survival experts will tell you that. You need three things to survive in the wilderness. Food, water, and shelter. Of those three things, which do you think is the most important? Well, everyone's stomach says food, right? But actually, so you can actually live uh, for 30 days without taking in food, under normal circumstances, obviously. Uh, You can actually go about three days without water. So water is not actually your quickest and most important resource. It's actually exposure to the elements that can kill you the quickest. And so shelter is uh, actually one of your first priorities in a survival situation. Uh, Believe it or not, you can get hypothermia in weather that is as warm as 50 degrees. So whether you're lost in the woods overnight or if you're stranded somewhere for multiple days, your first priority is to find a place to camp, to find a place that can give you that sort of shelter. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been taking an in-depth look specifically at the inheritance which God gave to the tribes of Israel in the land of Canaan. To this point, we've really, we've covered the boundaries of that territory, uh, to to the territory which is appointed to each of the 12 tribes, to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan River, and then to Ephraim, Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan on the west side of the river. And in tracing those boundaries out, our author has not only explained the location of each of the tribes, but he's also made a point to us about the faithfulness of God to keep all of his promises, even when they seem impossible from a human standpoint. God gave this land as an inheritance to Israel, thus fulfilling all that he had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These may not be the most riveting chapters in the Bible, but I hope that you have grown to appreciate them uh, for their importance. These chapters point us to the meticulous sovereignty of God. Each tribe received what God had set apart for them to receive uh, as a, really as a testimony uh, for his, to his gracious favor and his faithful love for them. Now, before our author moves on to tell us about what happened to Israel after the tribes received those portions of land, he has two more tasks, two more appointments to tell us about. The first is the appointment of six cities, uh, cities of refuge. And then the second, he's going to tell us about the appointment of 48 cities which were given to the Levites. This morning, we're going to be looking at the cities of refuge and the role which they played in the life of the nation and in the greater redemptive purposes of God. We're going to see how God provided shelter to his people. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word as I read from Joshua chapter 20. This is the word of the Lord. 
Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to, spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is, the, who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, and beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland, and from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, this is an interesting passage. And it's interesting because it shows the priority God has in redeeming us from our sin. The land of Canaan was a desirable place to live. It's described for us in the Bible as a place that was flowing with milk and honey, which is a way of saying that it was a land of blessing. It was also a place that reflected God's love for Israel because this was the place where the glory of God was meant to shine into the darkness of the world, where like a shining city on a hill, like a lighthouse beckoning people to come, Israel was beckoning people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to come and to see and to savor the glory of their creator. God blessed the Israelites richly with their every need, giving them food and water and new homes. But their greatest need was refuge from their sin. And we see that God provided that as well. When the people received the good gift that God was giving them, they didn't leave the cancer of their sin at the door. It followed them through the waters of the Jordan River like an infection. Already we've seen that, right? Because our author has clued us into ways that the tribes of Israel failed to obey God's commands, how they failed to carry out everything he told them to do. Joshua was a great leader. He was a godly man. But even he as the leader of Israel, was unable to remove the stain of sin from the hearts of God's people. That was a work which was reserved for Jesus Christ, who we see is the true and better Joshua. But until that day, the people needed shelter from their sin. Which brings us to consider the message of these six cities of refuge which were appointed here in Joshua 20 by the people. 
in the immediate context, this chapter informs us about how the people followed God's commands, appointing these cities to be safe havens uh, for, for the people. But beyond that, this chapter is immensely helpful for us because it helps us to understand the seriousness and the pervasiveness of sin. It helps us to understand and see the regard which God has for the sanctity of human life. It helps us to see the costliness of atonement. And then it shows us the steps that God took. And it makes us to consider the steps he has taken for us to provide us with refuge in his mercy and grace while still upholding perfect justice, which accords with his holiness. Which is to say, at the end of the day, the appointment of these six cities of refuge help us to better understand the work of Jesus Christ, who is the rescuer of sinners like you and me. So that's really our main idea this morning. God is a refuge for sinners. God is a refuge for sinners. So find your, your shelter in him. Now, to help us understand how God has provided that place of shelter, that place of safety in Jesus Christ, I have three points for you this morning. First, we're going to look at the thirsty sword. The thirsty sword. Second, we'll see the safe city. The safe city. And finally, we'll look at the significance of the death of a priest. So we'll be looking at the death of a priest. First, we want to begin by looking at the thirsty sword. And what I mean by that is the sword that pursues justice. So long as men think of themselves as self-righteous and self-sufficient, they will never respond to Christ's call for repentance. That's a statement from church historian Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley, which draw attention to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, verses 31-32, where he says, They who are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now God informs us in his word that there is not one person who has ever lived, save for Jesus Christ, who is righteous in his sight, who has not sinned. No, not one. All have sinned, Romans 3, Romans 3, 23 tells us, and fall short of the glory of God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Ephesians 2, 1 says. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is the human condition. Many years have passed since Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, but the consequences of their rebellion were felt by the Israelites here in Joshua chapter 20, and they are felt by us. Scarcely have the boundaries of the land been traced out for us for these 12 tribes. And we see that the next priority that God has in this, in his word here, is to provide cities so that people can flee them to escape this avenging sword. Now it is not pleasant for us to think about our sin. But it is necessary. Because until we see how sick we really are, we will never consider ourselves to be in need of a doctor. And until we see how dead our souls are and how despicable our sin really is, we will never think that we ourselves are in need of a Savior. A corpse doesn't smell its own rot. 
and a sinner cannot smell the stink of his own sin until God awakens his senses to it. God must open our noses to smell the stench of our sin, to experience our sin as he experiences it. And one of the ways he does that, the most direct way he does that, is to show that to us through his word. So that's one of the major focuses of this chapter. Joshua 20 intends for you to come to a grip with the severity of what sin is so that we will then respond by seeking our refuge in the God who saves us from that sin. Now before we get into the details of these cities and why they were appointed, let's just start with verse 1 and see that Everything that was done in this chapter was done in response to the command which God gave to Joshua and the people. We see that the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. The giving of the promised land to the tribes of Israel was not complete without the appointment of these six cities. Why is that? Well, First, it's because this is something that God had commanded to be done. But second, it's because God knew about Israel's sin problem. Though he called Israel by his own name, though he called them to be a holy people, he knew that they were, they were infected with the sin and the curse of Adam's sin. Which is why God gave the law, uh, not with the purpose that anyone might somehow be able to justify themselves in God's sight through, those, through works of the law, but rather so that they might see sin for what it is, so that sin might be counted for what it truly is, an assault on the glory of God, which demands death. When we look at these cities, we need to understand that they were given by God for the purpose of upholding his perfect justice. God told Joshua and the people to appoint these cities because he knew the reality that they were in fact sinners who were living in a broken world. These cities were given for the protection of justice, to spare the people from becoming guilty for the shedding of innocent blood. In Deuteronomy 19, Moses, which is where we first, we we actually read the details of what these cities were supposed to be, we see there that Moses charged the people by the command of the Lord to set apart these cities so that if anyone were to strike another person without intent or unknowingly so that they killed them, that person could flee to this city and, um, and be safe from anyone who was seeking to avenge the blood of the person whom they had killed. God ruled that such a person did not deserve to die because he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Uh, these cities were actually given to prevent the shedding of innocent blood. According to the law, anyone who killed someone uh, else out of hatred or out of enmity or anyone who killed someone intentionally was declared to be a murderer and that they could not enter the protection of one of these cities. A murderer such as that was to be executed under the law. They could not seek sanctuary in one of these cities of refuge. But God made a provision that if a person killed another person on accident or unintentionally, then they could flee to one of these cities where they would stand in the entrance, explain their case to the elders of the city, and then be taken in by them to be given a place to remain with them until he could stand before the congregation of Israel for judgment. These cities allowed for a person to have a chance at a fair trial 
So they, it, it could, in fact, be determined that uh, whether or not they had uh, shed someone's blood intentionally or not. And if it was determined that they had not uh, done so out of, um, out of a heart of hatred or intentionally, then they would be, their life would be spared. So this is a place that God uh, appointed for people to find safety from the sword of the avenger. Now the appointment of these cities tells us, it really has, we have three important lessons to take from this. First, uh, the appointment of these cities uh, teaches us about the regard that God has for the sanctity of human life. God created Adam and Eve in his own image. That image is something that is given to all of humanity, though it has been marred and damaged by sin. Life, therefore, is a sacred gift from God. We are commanded by God to love our neighbors as ourselves, showing regard for the image that is in others. God intends for us to treat one another with a sort of royal dignity that is due his image. In the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall not murder. The word there actually for murder includes acts of negligence which lead to the death of another person. So it includes acts that would have landed a person in one of these cities of refuge. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus expands this further. He says, You have heard that it was said, of, uh, said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus causes us to look at our own hearts and to see how pervasive sin really is. That it's not just, that God doesn't just evaluate what we do, but actually evaluates the heart of why we do it. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, God told Noah, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now I've read several scriptures there. But what we see the testimony of God's word is that God does not regard our lives lightly. He treasures them. He knows the number of the hairs of our, that are on our head. An assault against our fellow man is not just an assault on them, but actually on the very God whose image rests on them. And by providing these cities, we see that God had regard not only for the life of the person uh, who, who, had, who was the victim, but also how he had regard for the lives of those whose actions unintentionally cost the life of that person. So we see that God is here sparing them from the wrath of an avenger, determining that such a person ought not to be treated in the same way as a murderer, which, causes us to, which leads us to see uh, our second lesson here which is that God judges, God rightly judges us for our sin, whether we sin intentionally or unintentionally. If we go back to what God tells Noah in Genesis 9, we see that God's regard for human life and for the divine image that he has made us in means that he uh, does not clear the guilty. God provided these cities to be a place of refuge, but that did not mean in any way that this person was not guilty of taking a life. 
Now, our justice system provides uh, for differences and distinctions between someone who kills another person uh, with intent or with recklessness and someone who kills someone that even, even if they did everything in their power not to do so. We recognize that the world is a dangerous place and sometimes accidents happen. But that doesn't change the fact that a sacred life has been taken. And that doesn't change the fact that a reckoning must be had. So in providing for these cities, God was not making light of the life that was lost, even if it was due to a complete accident. It's not like a person who did this could then just go on living their life as if nothing happened, as if an image bearer had not been killed. Even if they hadn't meant to do it, their actions had had indeed led to the death of another person. In that moment, we see that they become a hunted person, marked as a manslayer, and they had to flee or face retribution at cost of their own life. Now, we sin in many different ways. Sometimes we are cold and calculating. We know God's commands. We know that those who disobey Him deserve to die, but we do it anyway. Sometimes we sin in ways where we are completely oblivious that something that we have done could have hurt someone else. They may not even tell us that, they have, that we've hurt them or that we've sinned against them. But that doesn't change the fact that we have sinned. Sometimes we sin by not doing things which we ought to. We commit sins of commission and omission. Whether we have committed a high-handed sin or whether we have sinned in ways that we do not know, or whether we have sinned by not doing something that God has called us to do, Joshua 20 makes us understand that we are sinners who deserve God's righteous judgment. Whether we are fully aware of the weight of that sin doesn't make the offense any less odious in the eyes of God. Numbness to sin really only confirms its power over us. So I hope that as you read this and as you consider what it may have been like for someone living in Israel to have to flee to one of these cities, that this passage kind of shakes you awake a bit this morning. When you live in the shadows, your eyes get accustomed to the darkness. When the angels told Lot about the judgment that God was bringing on Sodom, he hemmed and hawed in his house until finally they had to take him by the arms and lead him out. Living in a world that is at war with God, we oftentimes find ourselves getting accustomed to the sin around us. It becomes normalized, and so we, start to, we, stop, to think about this, we stop thinking about that sin as a scandal, and it's just normal to us. We forget how wicked sin really is, and we start to excuse sin as culture or opinion, so that when we do see it in the light of God's justice, we get offended. It hurts our eyes. So it's important for us, if we're followers of Christ, to understand that ambassadors of King Jesus are called to provide a message to people that bears, that shines light on the darkness. And in order to do that well, we must always look to the light of His divine glory. Otherwise, we will not feel the urgency of the mission that we've been given to preach, which is this good news of the gospel. Now, the third lesson that the appointment of of these cities teaches us is to wait on God as he satisfies us with perfect justice. God gets perfect justice every time. In verses 3 and verse 5, we have this reference to someone who's called the avenger of blood. 
Now, this is not the Marvel Avengers. This is someone very different. This is a title that actually only appears a couple times in the Bible. So it's a very, very specific term. This was a person who, who was, in fact, equipped by the law based on their connection to the victim to carry out justice. In our society, we appoint execution. The state does this, appointing executioners to this task. But in the Old Testament, this was the person who was equipped under the law to avenge the blood of the one who had been killed. This person was not allowed to take out private vengeance. They could only do this if that person who had killed their uh, loved one ventured out of the bounds of the city of refuge or if they were found guilty of murder and not manslaughter by the congregation. Now, maybe the idea of an avenger of blood sounds archaic, maybe a little even barbaric to you. We don't have this practice in our culture. But don't miss out here on what this says about the severity of, which, uh, of the way that God sees sin. The penalty of sin is death. And God says that he is the avenger of sin. He wields his sword with perfect justice. In Nahum 1, verses 2 and 3, we read this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Evil will never escape God's judgment. It cannot escape him. And that is good news. There are so many instances in our world where the wicked seem to get away with it. The fact that God wields perfect justice, not just justice that we might think of, but actually justice which satisfies, is a good thing. The wicked may seem for a time to triumph, but God says that he will judge them with his perfect justice. So where the judicial system of men fails, God's justice will prevail. Which is why God's people are instructed to wait upon the Lord. Vengeance is his. And we must remember that we ourselves deserve to be judged for our sin if it were not for the mercy and the grace which he has had on us. So therefore, we must never begrudge the mercy and grace to others when we have, that we have experienced for ourselves. Now, I know I've told quite a few of you this, but there's, I have never been so angry in my life at another person than I was when Ellie was hit by a drunk driver who was fleeing the police. I have never experienced rage quite to that extent. I can honestly say I was angry enough to kill. I know what it's like to be in the, in the shoes of an avenger of blood. Because by all accounts, she should have died. It was only by the grace of God that she walked out of the ER with me five hours later. When someone puts the life of your loved one in peril like that, it wasn't an accident. It was negligence and it was recklessness. When someone does something like that, your heart cries for blood. You want justice, and rightly so. But I'm reminded that justice was secured for me by Christ. 
And so, for months, I learned to forgive him, as Christ commands me to do. And that was hard. I learned, again, an old lesson that for, forgiveness is not a one-time event, but a day-to-day -day response of faith in God, who upholds perfect justice and will satisfy me and will satisfy you. Forgiveness takes faith in the God who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The only thing that I have found to be powerful enough to break that thirst for vengeance is when I see the cross of Christ where my forgiveness was secured because the sword of God's perfect justice was satisfied with the blood of Christ. That is where Jesus fulfilled the thirst of that sword. So friends, perhaps you have been hurt so deeply and so badly that you think you are actually justified in holding on to a grudge. Let me ask you, what sort of justice do you think you can achieve? Do you think that the parents and the friends of the victims of the Parkland shooter were brought any comfort by his confession this week? No. Because as they, all they heard was an admission of guilt, which confirmed it, but it didn't bring their loved ones back. God executes perfect, righteous judgment. And he satisfies us with his justice. Only God tests the acts of our hands and the motives of our hearts. And his justice is laid out according to his perfection. And therefore we must trust that only God can satisfy us. Which is why we are told in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We trust that the Lord, who is the judge of all the earth, will do right. And to do that, we must forgive as we ourselves have been forgiven. So that is the lesson of the thirsty sword. The second thing we see in the appointment of these six cities is we see a safe city. In Exodus 34, when the Lord descended in a cloud before Moses to make his glory pass before him, this is what he declared to Moses about his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now to this point, We've talked about how these cities of refuge reflect the perfect justice of God. But we must also see how they point to the mercy and the grace which God has on those who take their refuge in Him. This is good news for us. Because as we've seen, as I hope you have seen, every one of us deserves to suffer God's wrath for our sins. But even as God is a God who enforces perfect justice, He is also a God who delights in showing mercy and grace to undeserving sinners like you and me. 
And we see that mercy reflected in Joshua 20 in that God appointed these cities to be a refuge to guilty people. The people who fled to these cities may not have intentionally killed their neighbors, but they did. Uh, that didn't change the fact that, of what they had done, that there had to be a reckoning for the blood which had been shed. So in verses 7 and 8, we're told that according to the command of the Lord, the people set these cities aside, uh, that which were spread throughout Israel for the man, manslayer to flee to. Uh, and, and we were pointed to the, the location of these things. So on the west side of the Jordan River, uh, they set apart uh, Kadesh, which is in Galilee. So that's to the north. That's kind of north central. And then you have Shechem, which is in the hill country of Ephraim. And we'll look at the significance of that one next week when we talk about the cities appointed to Levi. And then we have, uh, finally, Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, which is the same city that, um, that uh, had, had been given to uh, Caleb, um, which we've seen already. So, and then also we have on the east side of the river, we see they set apart Bezer, who was, um, which was in the tribe of Reuben, then Ramoth in Gilead, and then Golan in Bashan, which was in East Manasseh. So what you're seeing is the placement of these cities are going through, they're central in each place, each region, north, central, and south, so that there's always a city of refuge close at hand. These cities were important, not only because they were central in, to each region of Israel, but because they were also cities which were allotted to the Levites. And we'll get into that, the importance of that detail, uh, next week. For now, I want to focus really on the reason that God gave these cities to the people. The first reason we're told in verse 9 is that these, were, these, these cities were designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. So we see that the first point, the first purpose of these cities is that they prevented people from taking justice into their own hands. It assured that the accused got a fair trial so that justice was upheld in the land. But God gave these cities uh, for another reason as well. Just because a man was acquitted by the congregation, just because it was determined that he had not killed his neighbor because out of hatred, or he had not lied in wait uh, to, in order to murder him, that didn't mean that that man got to go home. It didn't mean that he just got to go back home to his inheritance. No, he actually had to stay in the city. And if he were found at any time outside, the, outside of the boundaries of that city, then the avenger of blood could, in fact, kill him. His blood would be on his own head. He could not purchase his own freedom. And this is not something that he could give a sum of money to someone and they would give him safe passage. No, he had to stay in the city. And just as the city had to give him shelter so that he stayed there in a sort of exile... Uh, we see that he, had, that he himself had to, had to live there. So this is a life-changing event. You didn't just get to go home after this. The only thing, the only thing that could allow him to go home was the death of the high priest. This was the judgment of God's law. And once again, we see the sort of regard that God has for the sanctity of human life. It may have been an accident, but blood had still been shed. There was still guilt which had to be atoned for. When, Moses, when, when God announced his name to Moses on the mountain, he declared to him that he was the forgiver of iniquity and transgression and sin. But he also declared that he would by no means clear the guilty. 
God made no provision for murderers to be acquitted or spared. And though he did spare the lives of those who took life accidentally, we see that he didn't just sweep that under the rug. Instead, in his mercy, God provided a place for those people to find safety and security while they waited on a day when what they had done would finally and fully be atoned for. Joshua 20 teaches us not to presume on God's mercy and grace. God tells us that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He has patience towards us and patience towards the world. Just as he appointed these cities to be a place where the guilty could find mercy, so he has also declared that all who seek refuge in him by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ, will be saved. So there is mercy for those who fly to the king. That is the central message of Joshua 20. Psalm 2 instructs us, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are are all who take refuge in him. Can you imagine? Just put yourselves in ancient Israel for a little bit. Can you imagine a person who had accidentally killed their neighbor? It was very clear. It was an accident. But can you imagine them deciding that they wanted to just go back to their house and live as if nothing had ever happened? Oh, I'll, I'll head to Hebron in the morning. I just need to make sure I have my, my favorite sweatshirt. I hear things get cold there this time of year. No. No way. Not with death nipping at their heels. No, they would run there as fast as their horse or their donkey or their own feet could carry them, they would fly to the place of mercy. Friends, God has provided us with much more than a city of refuge. He's provided us with a king who has secured mercy for us at the cost of his own life. He has provided us with a place of refuge at his own side, a place of protection where we know not only mercy, but total and complete forgiveness. Which brings us to our third point this morning, to consider the death of the priest. According to verse 6, a manslayer could not leave the city where he had fled to until he had stood before the congregation for judgment and, and the man who was the high priest at the time had died. Now, that seems like just coincidental, but it is a really important detail. In order for a guilty man to walk free, it took more than an acquittal. It took more than just a declaration from the congregation, oh, you didn't mean to do it. It actually took the death of the high priest. Now, the significance of that might be lost on us unless we understand that the high priest was the one who made atonement for the nation before God. This is the guy who made the sacrifices for the guilt of the people. His death was significant, not only because he was the anointed priest, but because, as as such, he actually represented the whole sacrificial system. His death, in a manner of speaking, atoned for the life of the manslayer. So, in the days that a high priest died, you would see then a mass exodus from these cities of refuge back to their inheritance. The mercy that God has on sinners like you and me is not free. It is costly. It is free to us, but it was costly to Christ. 
God's patience comes at a price, one which he has paid for he has paid at great cost to himself. Romans 3 says, "But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall and falls short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a payment by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the cross of Christ justifies the righteousness of God to pass over the sins of people like you and me because it's there that Jesus has secured the payment which our sin demands. The death of the high priest in the days of Joshua didn't actually pay for anybody's sin. But I think we're meant to understand that God gave this stipulation so that we would better understand what Jesus has done for us as our great high priest, our better high priest. Listen to what the author of Hebrews has to say about this. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heir of the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, which is a place where only the high priest could go where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the same way that the death of the high priest allowed the manslayer to return to his home, to his inheritance in the land of promise, so Jesus, through his death on the cross, has released us in a much greater way to join us to him in his inheritance, no longer to be rebels and sinners against God, but to be regarded as saints, as holy ones, who have been redeemed by him and joined to him to be sons and daughters of God. That is the extent of Jesus' work as our high priest. Jesus offered a sacrifice that was better than the blood of bulls and goats. He offered himself. The sword of God's justice quenched its thirst in his blood. And because of that, death's hold on us was broken. And our relationship with God was, our relationship with him was restored and the forbearance of God's mercy became a reality of justice so that the Lord and the judge of all the earth does not look at us as ex-cons who are out on parole but as his own beloved children who are righteous in his sight. That is what the death of our high priest accomplished. And more than that, more than just his death, we live in his life since he defeated sin and death and rose again on the third day from the grave. 
Jesus is our city of refuge. He is our inheritance, our atonement, our great high priest. Jesus is the reason that believers can say that this world, this place where we sojourn is not our home. Heaven is our home. And praise be to God for his mercy and grace through which he has secured that hope for us. Let's pray. Lord, we've, we've looked at a lot this morning. And I hope, Father, that as we have, that you would do a work in us so that we'll never hear the names of these cities of refuge and think to ourselves, oh, they're just another city. But rather, Father, I pray that our hearts would leap because we have found shelter in the work of Christ. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for showing such love and regard for us even while we were yet sinners. And thank you for sending our high priest, Jesus Christ, to make atonement for us so that we can stand before you guilt-free and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Father, I pray that if there is anyone in this room who has not sought refuge in Jesus this morning, that they would do that now. That they would fly to you and receive mercy while it may be found. So that when your judgment comes on the earth, it will not take them because they have been redeemed. And in the light, in light of the hope of this message, Father, I pray that you would equip us as your church to go out this week and to bear this good news to our friends and our neighbors and our family and the strangers who we encounter, so that in doing so, Christ would be exalted as the King of kings and Lord of lords that he is. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.